Cleveland drops two or three to Minnesota, but more importantly, as Zach prepares to become a father, hopefully this week, and he is away for the time being from this podcast, we welcome our first guest spot on the Selby is Godcast to none other than Al Palowski. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. You see him on Guardians Live before and after Cleveland games on Bally Sports. You've heard him recently doing some play-by-play on the broadcast, filling in for Matt Underwood. And if you're, if my memory actually serves here correctly, you used to see him at the ballpark hosting between innings in a segment. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm remembering this incorrectly. Al TV? It's Al <laughs> Palowski. Al, it's good to talk to you again, buddy. Hey, TJ. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Al TV. That was uh, what they called it. 99 and 2000 now to be fair it was a much different sort of uh vibe with what we were doing back then versus what they do in park now but yes that was me way back god yeah 20 years ago time flies <laughs> so the uh the evolution of ryan pritt and then we see gab at the ballpark they'll have you to thank for you paving the way for for allowing that to get done you know, I didn't think of it that way, but now that you mentioned it, you're right. I'm, I'm going to go around and collect some thanks because, yeah, I did kind of trailblaze the way there, didn't I? <laughs> well, Al, thanks for taking some time to join the podcast today. As you know, Zach is taking some time away, well-deserved, as he's entering the, the realm of fatherhood. And, uh, you know, he made the joke, and it was a joke. I think it, he made it as a joke, but it, it might be in reality that he said he might be joining us again sooner than later because he might need an escape from just the baby crying and just wanting to come join the show. So despite the fact that you're here today and I really appreciate it, I mean, you could say it's big shoes to fill. I'm not so sure. I think you're going to do a tremendous job, but uh, I think he's got some, uh, some learning to do here in the very near future about just how much these getting to do things like we do on an everyday basis is a nice escape from sometimes some, some children duties. It can be indeed. Uh, let's start with, because uh, I want to take this a few different places, but let's start with the team where they're at now. Of course, we just saw them drop two or three in Minnesota. It's been, uh, every season kind of has their oddities, but this is, again, another season where it's there have been some oddities. Not only do you lose Josh Naylor in this series, who was on fire before this because of COVID protocols, but you lose an entire coaching staff. Now, we've seen this team go through some changes in the coaching staff because of Tito's health before, but... <laughs> seeing a number of, of guys that had to get thrown into situations where they're now coaching positions where they, they were in the minor, like John McDonald, I think was, is he at Lake, uh, Lake County coaching? And all of a sudden now he's thrust into coaching first base. What was it like seeing uh, everyone kind of take on some new responsibilities? Because that's something that you had to recently do. Kind of everyone has to be on call for, for everything at all time at, uh, at this part. Yeah, it definitely, uh, I guess, what do you call it? The spice of life, because you never know where you might be from one day to the next, which I mean, in one aspect, of course, that's that always keeps things interesting. Um, you know, num- number one, of course, you you want everybody to be healthy, but you know, in, in today's day and age, that's that's not necessarily going to be the case with COVID still, where people have to take some time off and you need some other people to fill in. It was interesting to see all these different guys in different places. 
Um, what are the the big positives now with the way they've added to minor league staffs? I mean, as recently as less than ten years ago, maybe five or six years ago, you would have uh, a head. You know, you'd have the manager, you would have a pitching coach, and then a trainer. Sometimes that might be all you traveled in the minors. Then they they add a hitting coach. Uh, you know, now you've got almost full staffs in the minors, and you have more on the major league staff than you ever had. So. You know, it's really easy to go down there and, and pluck somebody up from the minor leagues and bring them up. And, you know, we've seen Kyle Hudson before. And, of course, John McDonald's a familiar face. And Carl Willis just moves from the pitching coach over to the manager. So he had some familiarity there. And, and Mike Barnett, who's typically the, the replay guy, he moves into a bench coach role. So you've got guys that, that are familiar with what's going on. But, yeah, it's different. And you brought up especially where, you know, Josh Naylor, man, what the – what a wrong time for him to have to go out with COVID. Yeah. And he was just, he was probably swinging the hottest bat in baseball for a few days there. And then if you look at the way COVID has affected this team this year, I mean, back in April when you had Owen Miller out of absolute terror, he had to go down with COVID. Uh, same thing with Cal Quantrill. He was a close contact, so he had to take some time off. So you're seeing guys go out, not a, not a lot of players, but you the players that you are seeing going out, unfortunately, are guys that were playing very well. So um, the negative is that. The positive is you have guys, whether it's from a coaching staff perspective or whether it's a a player perspective, that the team has found ways to win and remain competitive. I know they're a game below 500 right now, but they got an awfully difficult portion of their schedule behind them. For the next few weeks here, this is going to be a softer part of the schedule. It's it's hard to say, let's go out and win a ton of games with, with this next group that you have coming in, but you've got the Reds, the Tigers, the Royals, the Orioles in the next few weeks. These are, are games now where you feel pretty good about this team getting on track. So I, I think in the next, let's say, three to four weeks, you're going to find out where this team probably is going to be for the rest of 2022. Yeah, you certainly want to get healthy in more ways than one here uh, on the schedule <laughs> and just from a, a health standpoint personally. Yeah. You know, I think you bring up a good point. And I, I, one of our Patreon supporters had brought this up maybe a week or so ago. We didn't get to address it, but I think it's a fair thought. You're, you're talking about a, a number of younger players here that don't have a, a lengthy track record of big league uh, either playing time or even success. And not only do you have the COVID protocols and guys missing time at possibly the worst time, but also the rainouts that this team has had. You know, I wonder how that impacts a younger team. Whereas veterans maybe have a, a more of a an established track record on how they can keep their bodies where they need to be. And this is already a game where it's so based on just getting in your routine and going into a rhythm and keeping that on a daily basis as much as possible. I'm a little bit surprised we've seen some of the bats be as hot as they have, especially with some of the younger players, considering the number of times they've had days or two days or, you know, uh, in, in the cases of of Naylor and, and Owen Miller lengthy periods of time where they're not able to do the things that they would like to be doing right now. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question, TJ. You know, how does a young team adapt to this different situation from what we've seen though? Um, and what's been very interesting to me is some of these younger hitters that have really done well this year. Uh, and, and they're going to come back to, to, to where their level would be as Terry Francona would, would say it. You know, we don't completely know what that level is yet because they're so young. But, you know, these guys are not going to continue batting between 350 and 400. That's just not going to happen what? over the length of the season. <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? I, I guess, you know, nobody's going to be George Brett here out of this group, at least this year. 
as far as we know, right? But what's interesting is um, they have really good ideas of the strike zone. I mean, everybody talks about Stephen Kwan, and he's off the charts for a, a young hitter as far as knowing the strike zone and then making contact within the strike zone. For a while, he was number one in baseball um, about a week ago. When he would swing at pitches in the zone, he was connecting at over 97% of those, which is just insane at the major league level. I understand if you swing at strikes, you have a lot better chance of hitting it than if you swing at pitches outside the zone. But still, to hit over 97% of them in the zone when you're swinging, that's incredible. But that was Stephen Kwan's number, number one in baseball. So even to do that for uh, the first month, month and a half of the season is is pretty impressive. But there's other guys like him. I mean, Owen Miller now, we've really seen him uh, put together some good, strong at-bats. Yes, he's going to strike out at times, but you know he's he's able to drive the ball to all fields. He's generally swinging at pitches that he can handle and that he wants to hit. Um, again, still a young hitter, even though we saw him last year. This year, he's really developing as that kind of guy. Andre Semenis, I mean, what a great job he's done with his with his plate coverage, with, again, swinging at strikes, with making contact, with driving in runs. Josh Naylor is still a, a young hitter. He, he hasn't looked like it this year. He's looked like a, a crafty veteran at the plate with some of the balls that he's been able to take to the opposite field or, or mistakes that he's hit out into right field when he's pulled it, such as in Chicago on Monday night when he hit those two home runs to help bring Cleveland back for the win. But these guys are all young hitters, and they all have very good plate discipline for the most part. They all have a very good idea of the strike zone. So I think that has helped them an incredible amount here dealing with, okay, two days off and then three games in two days and, you know, these double headers and having makeups and things like that, dealing with COVID issues, playing in different positions. Having that sort of plate discipline, I think, then carries through the entire game as well. And, and there's a certain comfort level that these younger players have at an earlier age for Cleveland than what is typical for the for the young player in Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's an interesting point because it's something I had brought up a few shows ago is that you kind of have to rethink how you evaluate offense when you have an offense that makes as much contact as these guys do. Because yeah. it's it's so abnormal for what is happening in the game of baseball. Now you can make a case that this could gradually change and other teams take more of a contact-oriented approach, and it might be the the best avenue for success if the ball is going to remain deadened and going to have humidors in every ballpark and maybe <laughs> it's not going to fly like we've seen in years past. So maybe it's, it is a, uh, a constant evolution in the sport as you so very typically see. But I think you have to kind of relearn how you evaluate hitters too, because in the past I would just look at a guy, you know, is he making hard contact? What's that hard hit percentage like? Is he, you know, accumulating a ton of barrels? Well, I don't know, Al, if this is the type of offense that you're going to be looking at, uh, necessarily the the quality of contact always being you know super high because when you're making tons of contact some of it's going to be kind of lousy but <laughs> can you optimize the contact can you use the entire field and I think that you bring up a good point about evaluating a guy's uh, plate discipline and how they're handling the strikes and I think you know when I uh, when we see Stephen Kwan maybe go through areas where he's not getting a ton of base hits like at the rate that was like a superhero level at the beginning of the season. Right. You could say, well, the numbers don't look good here recently. Is this a reason to worry? And to me, Al, it feels more like I need to see a guy completely change. If he, if he starts striking out a ton or expanding the strike zone, that's when I think you have to worry about a guy that makes a ton of contact. But as long as he's 
laying off stuff out of the zone and working the count still in the same way. And if he's just not having the success on balls in play, I think that's just going to, you're going to have to retrain yourself that that's how you evaluate hitters like this. I think that that's a fantastic point. And as the old saying goes, is everything old new again? Um, Look back, you know, maybe 50 years ago, even let's go back a hundred years ago, outside of guys like Babe Ruth, uh, most guys, that's what baseball was. It was it was putting the bat on the ball and getting on base. And I know the game has completely evolved since then as hitting goes. But you're right, as the balls definitely appear to be a little bit deader than what they were over the past few seasons. Um, is contact baseball more important now? Is it going to become more in vogue? Because if you look back at some of the greatest hitters of the game, generally we were talking batting average. And we've gotten away from the average stat in the last 20 years, I would say. And, you know, OPS has become the big one. And I think that's still a very important one. And probably, in my mind, the most important one to evaluate a hitter is OPS because it takes everything into consideration. If you're getting on base, how many bases you're getting per hit, you know, a walk is is still a good thing with OPS. Um, but batting average might come back into play a little bit now um, with a guy like Stephen Kwan. You know, as you said, he's going to he's going to make contact. He's going to put the ball in play at the start of the year. Everything was falling for him. More recently, less has been falling. But the important thing is he continues to put the ball in play. And I think guys like him can be 300 hitters if they put the ball in play constantly, because you're going to give yourself a chance to have more luck. Hence, creating your own luck. If you're striking out all the time, you give yourself no chance as a hitter at all. I guess I'm a little bit old school that way. I would prefer a guy that puts it in play a little bit more than a guy that, you know, could hit 30 home runs, but, but bat 210 or, you know, strike out 200 times because it, at the end of the day, are you more productive with those 30 home runs? Well, sure, if you hit them at the right moment in every game, but what are the odds of that? I mean, are you hitting them from the seventh inning on? Are you hitting them in, in one-run games? Or, you know, are some of those 30 home runs coming in an 8-2 to two game when it doesn't really matter? So to me, somebody that, that can put the ball and play a lot like a Stephen Kwan or an Owen Miller or an Andre Semenes, I think that that will have value. I always did, but even more value now. Interesting conversation I had with Rick Manning uh, some years ago now. I, you know, Rick and I talk from you know time to time when I do games with him, we talk more. This is before one of the games we did a few years ago. Um, and he said, you know, when I was coming up, striking out was bad. That was the last thing you wanted to do as a hitter. Put the ball in play. That was drilled into your head when, you know, when he was in high school and in the minor leagues and even at the major league level. Don't strike out. That is a bad thing. To where now strikeouts aren't seen as, a, as, as big of a deal. But if you're old school, like Rick, and my mindset is too, I, I was brought up the same way. Of course, I wasn't quite the hitter Rick was. That's why I never played <laughs> professional baseball. <laughs> But but having that mindset and going the other way, and when you have two strikes beyond anything else, put the ball in play and and make them make them feel the baseball. I still think that can be important, and I think that that this year's Guardians team has shown that because you look at their pitching, and we all thought the starting pitching was going to be pretty darn consistent because that's been the track record for the last ten years with this staff. Well, some of the starters have been okay. Some are coming around right now, like Tristan McKenzie. But for the most part, they haven't been as consistent as you'd like. You figure Aaron Savali and Zach Plesek are eventually going to get on track here, especially against some of the lineups they're going to see in the next few weeks. But those guys haven't so far. Shane Bieber's lost a couple miles per hour. Is that going to come back? 
that's a question too. But this hitting is what has carried this team to to being just three games behind Minnesota for first place. And even though they're a game behind beyond 500, you figure with the way the offense has been, once this pitching does get it in gear, and the bullpen's been very good, but the starting rotation has had some struggles as a group, at least from where we thought it would be. But it's this sort of offense, TJ. It's this offense that is putting the bat on the ball. It's getting runners in scoring position. It's getting hits once the runners are in scoring position. That's what has carried this team to most of their wins so far this year. Yeah, it is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, we haven't seen this from this team in a number of years where it's the offense leading the way. And so much that I kind of want to bury the pitching, because we'll get there. <laughs> but I kind of want to bury that on the rundown a little bit, because that's not as fun to talk about as as it is to talk about Andres Jimenez swinging the bat the way that he is, and Owen Miller, and Josh Naylor, and... The reason I think for that is because the pitching obviously has just not been fun to discuss, but this team entered with so many questions to answer, and it really was an extension of last year, and you didn't get a lot of answers, and a lot of the answers that you did get, I always say, you didn't really like, and even if it's an answer you didn't like, it's still an answer. You have to go with it, but with the ga- the way the game is right now, it is so difficult, maybe more difficult than ever, for these younger players to come up and I don't know if it's adapt to the major leagues, if it's a, a, a big difference between the pitchers they're seeing at AAA and the pitchers they're seeing in the major leagues, but how many top-tier can't-miss prospects are we seeing option back to the minor leagues or just being absolutely dreadful at the plate? The Seattle guys, Jared Kelnick, he, he can't stay in the major leagues. He can't have any success. The first baseman in Detroit that you know everyone was, was very uh, very high on. And even in Cleveland, so many hitters that have had good minor league track records that have come up here last year struggled, and it has taken them a while to gain some footing. I think the way this game is right now, it is so difficult for younger hitters to come up here for whatever reason it is and have success. And I feel like this this season has kind of demonstrated why you need to have a little bit of patience, and it can be tough because you want to get those instant results, and occasionally you do have the, the rookie that comes up and dominates, and you say, why can't our guy be like that guy? Well, sometimes it just it's going to be difficult for these guys to make the jump. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, you know, Cleveland's got three guys right now that immediately come to mind. Josh Naylor, who was fine last year, but at the very beginning of the year struggled a little bit and uh, until he went on the COVID IL. Look at what he's done this season. As I said, when he went on that IL, he's become that moment. He was probably the hottest hitter in baseball for a few days. Look at what Andre Semenis has done. They acquired him from the Mets. He came up early with New York um, in 2020. Very young, skipped AAA. There he was with the Mets. He had a fantastic finish to, to 2020. And then last year, he struggled a bit, had to go up and down this year. He's not struggling at all. He's thriving at the big league level. And then, of course, Owen Miller, who batted nearly 500 last April at AAA. He came up, struggled a bit, went back down. Kate Wino was up and down. This year, in April, he batted 400. He's cooled off a little bit, but he's still having a pretty good start to the season. Sometimes it might take that little bit extra. And you're right, Kelnick went down. Spencer Torkelson in Detroit, maybe, you know, he's had his ups and downs. There's some guys that that hit the ground running. Most of them do not. Most of them have to have to go back down. Um, it's going to be interesting to see as, as this year continues to develop, you know, where are the young hitters going to be throughout baseball? Is, is it going to continue that trend of even more of them when they put up some great numbers and were top prospects, but then when they get to the major league level, they struggle. 
the pitching is so much better in the majors than even at AAA. Think about this, TJ. Most of the guys that are pitching at AAA, most of them, unless you're a top prospect, that that's your last stop before you make it to the majors. Most of them are number five starters in the majors at best. That's why they're there. If they're better than a number five starter, they're not pitching in AAA. But for the most part, they're number five starters or even worse. So think about playing every day in baseball where you get to face the number five guy. Then come up to the major leagues, and suddenly you face that guy once a week, if you're lucky, if you, if you catch him in that rotation. Otherwise, you're facing guys like, you know, Shane Bieber, Max Scherzer, uh, Walker Bueller, Logan Gilbert, Alec Manoa. You're facing guys like that. You don't see pitches like that in AAA, and I think that's the big adjustment. You're seeing guys that don't miss spots as much. You're seeing guys that can dot the corners. You're seeing guys that have multiple plus pitches, multiple wipeout pitches in the big leagues, and you just don't see that in AAA. We've debated for for years, and this is more than just a debate on this show. It's a debate that takes place everywhere. When you try to evaluate how much a coaching staff can impact individual players, because I think you know, somewhere in our brain we like to think that uh, you know uh, a coach or a manager has a very a hefty impact on these players. And sometimes it's, it could just be a situation. It can be the right situation at the right time. It could be the wrong situation at the right time. You never quite know how much credit to give a guy, uh, an assistant coach when things are going well, and you don't know how much to rip on a, uh, a coach when things aren't going well. Right. And so yeah. we've had this debate for so long about the, the hitting staff. And when Ty Van Berkeley was here, he kind of became a, a hot button for fans. Anytime things were going poorly, it was always, well, the fix is just fire the hitting coach. And I've always had some pushback on that because I don't think that in, that is going to work out the way that many people think it's going to like, it may, maybe makes you feel good in the moment, but is that going to have a drastic impact on the hitters? I'm always just a little skeptical about that, but then we see the changes they made in the off season. Obviously they want to go in a, a different direction with the hitting staff and in a, a more of a, a developmental standpoint. And they wanted to find someone that was maybe more in line with what they're trying to accomplish right now. So they bring in Chris Valleca. And so, you know, the joke is in the first week, they're hitting the ball well. Oh, <laughs> you give Chris Valleca all the credit. But, okay, so you get into May and we can actually, I think, start to have this conversation about how much credit do you give in a new assistant here in a new role that is helping some of these younger players adapt to the major leagues and maybe adjust to what they need to do to be successful. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another interesting topic. And I think that's one you can debate all day and all night long. Um, I think coaches definitely can make a difference, the good ones. Um, and let me say this. It, it, you look across all levels. I think the higher you get, the better the coaching, obviously. But if you go all the way back to high school, you know, I've been around a lot of coaches at different levels, high school, college, obviously professionally. Um, there, are, there are a lot less good coaches out there than you would think, coaches that can reach – everybody or a majority of their players. Um, there's sometimes that you might have a coach that only reaches a couple or reaches none, really. I mean, I've, I've seen that, that where somebody might not know the game as well as they think they do or whatever their communication style is just doesn't work. So when you find a coach that can really reach their players on a certain level, and maybe it's 
you know, physical tools that, that really understands the mechanics of hitting, for example. You know, obviously, Chris Valeka has has definitely worked with a number of hitters on this team. There's no question about that. I mean, Owen Miller talked about getting with him, and they're on the same page. There's some guys that have their own hitting coaches. Jose Ramirez has his own. Doesn't mean you're not going to listen to the guy that's also employed by the team, too. But, you know, you have guys that have their own. Michael Brantley has his dad that he's worked with his entire life. That's probably always going to be his number one hitting coach. So you have different guys that respond to different coaches and different training methods and in different frames of, of mind, you know, look at Phil Jackson in, in basketball in X's and O's. I, I think he was fine, but he's most known for the mental part of the game and how he was able to, to reach the superstars of the game and win with whatever group he had with them. Um, I think that's what it is more than anything. Do you connect with a certain coach? I mean, I, again, I only played through college, but I know, uh, you know, throughout my path in high school and college and playing in, you know, a couple of higher end summer leagues, with baseball, there's certain guys that you feel are helping you and really can, can like whatever they say is going to click and, and you click with them. Then there's other guys that you just feel like this guy doesn't understand me at all, or he doesn't understand my game at all. Or, you know, in a couple situations, this guy, does this guy really understand baseball at all? And that happens at every level. I mean, that happens professionally too. There are players that have those same thoughts. They might talk with a guy and think like, man, this guy really gets it. or He really gets me. This is fantastic. Or they might talk to him or, or work with him a little bit and think, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> and when you get higher on the, on the, the food chain, you, you go higher up the ladder, it becomes more and more specialized. And, and it becomes more and more in tune with, with your mechanics of what you're doing, whether it's a swing or, or pitching or, or whatever it might be. So does it make a difference? I would say it definitely does. No question about that. Um, and I think there's just certain guys that maybe have a better grasp of the science of hitting or pitching and that also just have a, a, a much better communication style and a way to reach their students or their pupils or, or their players, however you want to classify them. Well, I mean, that was a common thread we heard often with Ruben Niebla that he just connected yeah. with so many different pitchers and maybe it wasn't always the technical thing, but it was helping someone understand why they were doing what they were doing and being able to, to motivate and, and, and translate and do everything that, in a, you know, an assistant coach strives to do. He seemed to, to check all of those boxes. And of course other teams notice that too. He's, <laughs> he's whisked away to San Diego and uh, now we're seeing a, a pitching staff have, have to try to adjust with everyone in new roles. And as far as assistance go and the bullpen has been pretty intriguing. I've, I've seen some arms there. You know, Trevor Steffen, what he's doing, that's really fun to kind of see that, that, uh, yeah. that transition for him. Um, Sam Hentges, seeing him gravitate to a, a left-hander role that, makes him look like Andrew Miller at times and maybe just because of his height and how he's throwing the ball but also kind of in the numbers too um, so there's some fun things going on and then we get to the starting rotation which has just not been as we're used to as advertised and you mentioned Bieber that velocity is down now you spend every day sitting next to a former pitcher that knows probably a thing or two about velocity and Jensen Lewis what has been your guys' take as, as you're watching this unfold with a guy that had the shoulder issues last year, comes back, is not throwing as hard as he once was, for 
most of his outings, it hasn't impacted the actual performance. Now, you can look at strikeouts and swings and misses and other things within the performance that don't look on par with with past Shane Bieber. But he also had that stinker against Toronto. And it, I think it kind of shows when he's living closer to 91, 92, it's got to be a little bit more perfect than he was when he was able to reach back and hit 94, 95 on occasion. So what, what do you what do you think as we're watching this unfold this year? Well, yeah, he he's got to be as any pitcher does the the less hard you throw let's let's use that as a term i don't know if that even really is grammatically correct but for baseball it is the less hard you throw the more perfect you have to be or maybe perfect's not the right word the better you have to be with your command and control so if you can win i mean you can win throwing in the upper 80s look at josh tomlin i mean when you've got a curveball like he does an exceptional command and control that's why Josh Tomlin has stuck around forever. Greg Maddox is the example that's always used, but he is definitely the exception, not the rule for a guy that can still throw, you know, top out at the end of his career, what, 85, 86, 87 with the fastball and still get major league hitters out and still win games. So if you are that good with your command and control, you don't necessarily have to throw that hard, but it is harder to do. Why? Because as you said, if you've got 95 and you can rear back and bring it, that makes a difference. Um, you know, if, if a hitter's sitting off speed, you come with the fastball and he's not looking for that, most of the times you're going to get him. If you're throwing mid-90s, he doesn't have much of a chance. If it's 89 or 90 or even 91, maybe he fouls it off and lives, lives to see another pitch, for example. So you, you've got to make more pitches. But you can win, you know, throwing low 90s. Guys have done it, you know, forever, especially guys back in the day. You know, you had some guys that before the, the age of radar gun, that, you know, speed wasn't as big of a factor because there was no way to measure it. You just had guys that if they had great deception and great delivery and, and all those positives that can win. As far as what's going on with Bieber, you know, you're never 100 percent sure why it's it's only a mile per hour or two. We checked his his uh, fastball the last time he went. He was. You know, he was basically between 90 and a half and just below 92. So it even seems that now in the last start or two, he's probably added an average of a half to a mile per hour more than what he was pitching back in April. So as the weather gets warmer, as he throws more, builds up the arm, gets a little bit stronger. Remember, he missed a lot of time last year. Maybe that those miles per hour will come back, or at least he'll add another one on top of what he's done and you know, if he's sitting between 92 and 93, that should be just fine. Um, but nobody really knows that it's it's interesting to see, you know, every pitcher, every human being that throws a baseball, is it, they're going to lose miles per hour as they get older. You wouldn't expect Shane Bieber to lose any right now, um, but he did coming into this year. So it'll be interesting to see as the season goes on, does that come back? But as far as pinpointing exactly what it is, I don't think anybody knows yeah. for sure, and nobody knows for sure that it's it's never not going to come back. Yeah, nobody knows for sure, or they're not telling us. <laughs> Either way, we just don't <laughs> that, have that too. <laughs> we don't have the answer right now. And I mean, I, I think you know, as you kind of go to scary places in your brain, it gets alarming when you think, oh, they're not telling us something because they're worried about it. They might not be telling us something because they just honestly don't know, and it leads us to kind of speculate, and that's part of why we're here to do this. And and so I guess on some level, because he's coming off of the injury last year, you, you at least I am willing to give him a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt. Now, that Toronto sure. start was kind of scary, but still, yeah. you're talking about a really talented guy that most of the time puts the ball where he wants it and I think can have success. The one that has really surprised me is Aaron Savali, because 
I don't think anyone would confuse him for being an ace of a rotation, but if you would have asked me of the five guys within the rotation who I felt most confident about just being steady on a daily basis, I guess I can phrase it, it would have been him, that he wasn't going to come out here and, and look like a Cy Young. But at the same time, you felt confident you're going to hand him the ball, he's going to give you six innings and probably three or fewer runs, and you're going to be happy with that. And that has not been that guy. And I'm, you know, we've, we've kind of had our theories on this show. He's a guy that throws a ton of pitches, and he's got to use them all pretty consistently because he doesn't have that one lethal knockout pitch, and he's got to be able to put them where he wants. We are just not seeing the same Savali that we've kind of grown accustomed to seeing the past couple of years. No, we haven't. Um, and, you know, he hasn't been the same since he walked off Wrigley Field with that injured finger either. Uh, you know, it, it all goes back to that. Look at Aaron Savali before that. Look at Aaron Savali after that. Now, I'm not saying that that's what's the issue right now, but that's when you can see a clear difference in his splits. Um, he was better against Toronto. He had the eight strikeouts because his curveball was exceptional and he had excellent command of that that night. Uh, his last time out again, he he had some struggles, but um, some of the runs that went to to his ERA and he put them on base. And that's those are his responsibility. I totally get it, but those were given up by the bullpen. Those weren't given up by him. Um, I thought he looked good against Toronto. I thought he looked okay against Minnesota. So maybe he's starting to put it together. I think you're on the right track. He's got a a bunch of different pitches. I mean, he has six pitches he can throw. Um, and if those are all working, he's in a pretty good spot. But because he, too, doesn't have that, you know, wipeout fastball, his curveball could be a wipeout pitch uh, as as he continues to develop that even now. You know, you keep at his age, you're still developing your pitches. You, you can and you should at the major league level. And he is with that curveball. And that's always going to be his best pitch. If he continues to have that to where it's as good as it is and it gets even a little bit better. Now you've got a situation where you've got that one pitch that's going to be hard to hit, even if they know it's coming, because it's going to break in different ways. You can put it in different places. You can have a different depth to the break as well. And if he can do that and command his other pitches, he, he's going to be fine. The other thing to factor in with all of this with Aaron is there is now a ton of film on him because he's pitched for a little while at the major league level. A lot of major league hitters have already seen him, so they know what to expect. When that happens, that's where a lot of times you see, can pitchers last up here? Um, can a guy reinvent himself a little bit? Can he continue to develop his pitches as I just touched on? Can he maybe come up with a different pitch? Can he consistently outguess the hitter or consistently throw the pitch the hitter isn't expecting him to see? Those are all things that once they've seen you, if you've got great stuff when you come up, first time that anybody sees you they're, as a hitter, no matter how good of a hitter you are, they're going to struggle with you a little bit because the pitcher will always have the advantage if he can command his pitches and he has great stuff. But then after a good hitter or even an average major league hitter, because an average major league hitter is still one of the best hitters in the world, once they've seen you a couple of times, it's like, okay, I know what to expect here. I think I know what he's going to throw. And they know what to look for in that pitch. They know what to look for in the, in the zone. They, they can focus on, on different parts of the zone when they're hitting. You've got all those things, factors in it. You know, now as a pitcher, can you come up with something a little bit different or a little bit better and then get to the point where you establish yourself and now you feel confidence in a number of your different pitches and you can throw a bunch of those. I think that might be part of what Aaron's dealing with now too. You know, can he develop that curveball even more, throw it consistently, Throw it to where even if you know it's coming, it's hard to hit. And then on top of that, can he command those other pitches? Because he's got a lot of them. 
And if you can command all those, you can still be a, an incredibly dangerous pitcher to deal with because if you've got that many pitches, yeah, it's hard for a hitter to look for one you know, one pitch and guess correctly and then still be able to react to all those other ones when he's at the plate. I will say, Al, one of the things I miss the most about not being down at the ballpark on a daily basis is some of our clubhouse talks we used to have. We used to talk all things about Cleveland Radio, Cleveland Radio, Cleveland Media, what's happening in the scene. Uh, sit there, armchair quarterback, what everyone should be discussing. More, more. well, at the time, more Indians talk on the radio, more Guardians talk <laughs> on the radio. Uh, but I know that that's, uh, that's one of your passionate things. You, you, you love uh, broadcasting. Of course, you would have to at least a little bit to be on television, to be doing play-by-play. But uh, where did that uh, that love of broadcasting, TV, radio, where did that all come from as you were growing up? You know, I remember once I was I, – I remember this. There's some things that stick with you forever. I mean, if you think back to your childhood from, you know, the age of like three or four when you could start forming memories that you'll actually have in your head until about 12 years old, very few of those things you can remember. When, when you think back on it, maybe something jogs a memory once in a while and you're like, oh, my goodness, I remember when I – Rode that ride at Cedar Point when I was 10 years old. You completely forgot about that experience. You go back, you see it, you say, whoa. Uh, but for the most part, you don't hold on to, to, to individual memories a lot during that time just because you get older and, you know, they start to fade. But I remember when I was eight years old, I had a conversation with my parents. I was watching a Browns game. And I remember saying to them, I said, so these guys that are talking during the game, how do you get to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and my I remember my mom saying to me, you know, <laughs> she says, well, that's a job just like any other job. So, you know, just like your dad and I, we go into work, they go into work. Their work is going to the game and, and calling the game. And then when I was eight, I was like, wait a minute. So you can get paid. That's a job to go watch <laughs> a game and talk about it. It's like, I'm doing this. This is what I want to do. So I know some people get into it for the, you know, the, celebrity the fame some people think they can make a lot of money in it you can but those jobs are later down the road definitely starting out you're not going to make much of anything because supply far outweighs demand uh, but i got into it just because it's like well i gotta have a job i love sports you know at that time it was like well i'm gonna play major league baseball if not the nba so that's probably the route i'm going but if that <laughs> but yeah but if that doesn't work i'm gonna do this because then i can still be around sports so it's it's funny how it all worked out. Uh, you know, I loved playing baseball and basketball growing up. I loved watching football. Um, I really enjoyed soccer as well. I enjoy most every sport. But it's funny because the sport that I ultimately ended up playing college, baseball, and the sport that, you know, I probably played more games than anything else just because, you know, when we were growing up, you could play more baseball games. There were more baseball leagues or whatever that I played in than there were basketball scenes. Um, so that was just the sport that I was always around more than any of the other ones though. I was around all of them all the time. I was always doing something with sports, but it's, it's funny that that's the one that, you know, that I make the majority of my living <laughs> at. And it was, yeah, that was, that was the whole reason to, to get into broadcasting because for me as well, TJ, and as you know, being in broadcasting for some of us, it's very easy to, to I don't want to say it's, a, it's easy to do, but it's always come easy to me. And we, you see people that are that they want to be broadcasters, but they struggle. You just see they're always struggling. It's they have to write everything out they want to say. Um, they need a teleprompter, for example. You know, we don't. You know, I use one. <laughs> when I do the news at Channel Three because it's part of the. So everybody knows when to roll the tape of the highlights I'm going to talk about. But sure. you know, 
we've got an outline at best, but there's, you know, when you do a radio talk show, there's no script. When, when I do the pre and post game show, there's no teleprompter. We have an outline. Again, <laughs> there's things you want to follow, but you know, it's all just, it's all in your head and you're just talking about it. And for me, that's, that was always, you know, and again, I don't want to sound flippant about it, but that was always relatively easy for me to do is to talk about sports, which is why play by play has always come so easy to me as well. So it just all fit. It's like, great. I get to be around sports. I get to talk about sports for me. That's the classic case of find something you love to do. You won't have to work a day in your life. And that's, that's kind of how it, how it all came together for me. It's like, let's, let's do this. So it wasn't, it wasn't because I get to be on TV or talk on the radio. It's like, no, I want to be around sports and talking about it to me is easy and I have to have a job. So this to me makes perfect sense. So that's the way. (laughs) I looked at it when I was eight years old, and I've kept that mindset ever since. Well, I'll defend not writing things down and following a script, because then I can later come back and say, no, no, I didn't think about that stupid thing that I was, it just came out of my mouth. I didn't, exactly. you know, have that, I didn't premeditate any of that. It just, <laughs> <laughs> if, if I would have sat down and wrote that out, then actually said it, then you could actually rip me for that. No, it, it's it's funny, because it, it's it sounds very similar to, you know, for me growing up, and, and seeing broadcasters and, and hearing Herb Score and Tom Hamilton on the radio, it's like, man, that's what I would love to do. I want to do play-by-play. And I remember having a similar conversation with my parents, and I think any parent that gets asked that, I mean, there's there's a, a script to follow for becoming a doctor or a nurse or, you know, whatever you want to do. There's, sure. there's schooling. for There's no real handbook on how, you, I mean, there is broadcasting classes and but it's not like uh, something that if you get asked that, you have no background in that. You would have no idea how someone would get into that. And, and, right. and you hear as, as, you're, as you meet more people, everyone tells you, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. And it's not because they don't love it or it's not the, one of the best jobs you could ever do. It's because it's really difficult. And a lot has to go right to get into the position you are. You know, my parents always jo- joke that they said, oh, we should have just listened to you when you were, you know, 13 years old setting up a a camcorder and trying to read the news wearing a suit jacket, you know, we should have listened to you that that's what you wanted to do. But it also just kind of takes being in the right spot at the right time. You know, I I had to struggle through college knowing what I wanted to do until I finally, too many years after I should have figured it out, figured out what I wanted to do, but it wouldn't have worked out in the same way. I wouldn't have gotten the same opportunities. Sometimes you just have to be in the right spot at the right time with the right attitude. And that's kind of how you get into this. Sure. And, and, you know, that's, that's a great point as well that, um, you know, and sometimes you look at things and you go, man, if things would have been just a little bit different, I would be, you know, I'd have been calling play by play for the last 20 years of a, you know, (laughs) major league or an NBA team or, you know, whatever it would be. Um, Love what I'm doing now. Love being able to cover the team that I grew up watching. I mean, how many people get a chance to do that? First of all, as you said, it's, it's not necessarily easy to get into broadcasting and you do need to have some things go your way. Um, but to, then to, to be able to, to stay in your hometown and, and do that. I mean, there's something really special to that. And it, it is interesting because there is no direct path. And I, I kind of had a feeling it's like, okay, I know there's a lot of people that want to do this. Um, and I just based, even when I was a kid, I based that off of, well, who wouldn't want to do this? You know, to me, it's like, you know, as a kid growing up that loves sports, it's like, well, this, this seems like if you, if you can't play sports professionally and you're not going to get into the coaching side of it, this seems like the perfect thing to do. And, you know, almost all of my circle, when I was growing up, we were all, you know, athletes, jocks, whatever you want to call us. That's what we, that's what we did all day. We played baseball, basketball, football, kickball, dodgeball, whatever it was. We swam in the summers. We were always doing something sports. 
so I knew that there was going to be a heavy competition for it just based on that. There's got to be other people out there that thought like me. It's like, hey, I want to be around sports and, and be able to do this. And as Casey Coleman once said, you get to you get to work in the playground of life or cover the playground <laughs> of life. You know, that's and that's what it is. But at the same time, yeah, it's like, OK, if you're going to do this and you know it's going to be tough, you know, maybe things don't work out or. With me, I always felt they would. I just didn't know how long it would take. Mm. So my parents, the, the the key was, for you know, they said to me, they're like, look, this is what you want to do and this is what you love. Go ahead. We'll support you. We understand you're not going to start out making a lot of money. So if you need to live with us, if you need a little help financially, whatever, just stay with it and we'll help you out. So my parents were a, were a big support system for me too. Mm. And in many different ways. And with, without that, I mean, if I would have started out like some kids do, Hey, some, some people meet their, their eventual spouse in college, you know, so you, you go through college, you get married. And then before you know it, you're 24, 25, you have a kid or two. Well, now it's, it becomes a practical thing about, you've got to make a certain income just to support yeah. your family. Um, so that was something that I didn't have to worry about early on either. It was just me. It was, you know, I could live with my parents if I had to, and I did for a little while. Um, and it was you could take the jobs that would make more sense for your career development than just taking the jobs that would pay you the most money. And for me, that was important, too. So I was always able to have something with play by play or whatever my main job was. It wouldn't interfere with my play by play work or, you know, hosting or anchoring, which is, you know, what I do. The majority of now is hosting or anchoring. But. Uh, during the winter, I get to do Cleveland State. I'll fill in in other places. Occasionally, I'll do a national game somewhere. And then, of course, I get to fill in uh, on the Guardians, too, whenever Matt needs some time off. So it's uh, it's worked out very well, but that was the key, TJ, having that parental support and then mm-hmm. having the mindset of, okay, I'm not going to walk into calling the NFL game of the week tomorrow <laughs> after I graduate. It's, it's, it's going to be a ways to get there. You just have to stay with it. And that's a good thing, too, because I, I think yeah, everyone needs is. to get a little bit of, I always phrased it as bad radio. You need to get a little bit of it. Now, for some of us, like, you know, present company included, I, I'm still getting the bad radio out occasion. Uh, but you need to get, you need to power through those, uh, those rough times for sure. Um, and, yeah, well, and, and, and you DJ, end up better. Great. I told you, I was like listening to you on the radio. I miss you when you're not there, but you were a guy that I'd flip over, you know, driving home after the game. It's like, oh, well, TJ. I listen to him. Oh, shucks. Um, no. So you mentioned, uh, you know, seeing that as a, as a young kid, and that's really what you want to do. And of course, now you've you've done play by play. As you mentioned, you you do Cleveland State. You've done Guardians games in the past. You recently here did them. Now I think everyone uh, that hasn't been in a position, at least for me personally, maybe it's different for you. But even sitting down to do this this podcast with you, there's like an element of it's not like nervousness, but it's like uh, in the, the pit of your stomach. If you don't get that little bit of of a, a jolt when you're getting ready to to broadcast to record to do something then you probably need to be doing something else at that point cuz you don't you don't feel what you should be feeling as you're stepping into the shoes of doing something fun like this and i got to imagine even as you're doing your play by play now and filling in you feel just that in the pit of your stomach it's an excitement it is a little bit of a almost a terror feeling i don't know how else to describe it <laughs> but i want to hear about your first the very first time you stepped into those shoes of doing play by play what was your feelings like going into that game how did you prepare and how did you feel how do you feel about that now looking back on it god that's it's a great that's a that's a great thought um i had you know along the way you had different ones where you sit down and you 
call play by play. Um, but to do like the first, you know, football game I did was a John Carroll football game. And yeah, you're a little bit nervous for the first time, but I felt pretty good going into it just because, you know, I'd always practiced before. Um, and then when you do, then when you go into new play by play situations, you feel pretty good about calling a game, what, no, no matter the sport. I've always felt very comfortable with all the sports. There's never been one where it's like, oh, God, I, I really love doing this one, but I hate trying to do this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so it's, I always feel comfortable with the play by play. When you go up another level, you know, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to run the gambit from doing, you know, high school games at a low powered AM um, to doing games on ESPN, to doing Major League Baseball games. Um, it's, I guess the first time you do it, you feel nervous for, because you don't know 100% what's going to happen because it's a different environment more than anything. So I guess I don't get nervous about calling the game itself, but I get nervous about a new environment. That after I do one, then it's like, okay, now I see where everything is. Now I understand how everything's going to work. Now I've got that comfort level. But, and that's really the key about calling play by play. It's, it's being comfortable with the game you're calling. Well, I, you know, most of the games that I call, almost every one of them, I've seen the teams play before. So there's that comfort level. If I haven't, I'm going to go and research them a little bit. You'd still rather see them in person. Um, I'm not a big note guy. I tried that for a while and, you know, I still take notes going into a game. I have some things prepared, some things I want to get to, but there's some people who have, you know, they've got notebooks upon notebooks and all these things. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's up to each individual style, but to me, I think you might get a little bogged down in some of that stuff and then you lose the focus on the game. So, I always want to go in prepared like, okay, I, I want to have an idea of, of how the, the, the different players are coming into the game. Who's hot? You know, if it's soccer, who's been scoring the goals? Who's the hot goalkeeper? If it's baseball, who's been obviously hitting the baseball with, with a better average? Who's more likely to do well against this pitcher? Things like that. And then I want to always, when I call a game, I want to make the game the focus and I want to have my full attention on what's going on. Like if you try to try to talk to me when I'm doing a game, I'm, I'm, I'm a completely different person, you know, during a timeout, I might, might be able to talk, but I mean, I had some people like at Cleveland state, not knowing things, just, you know, come up to me like in the middle of trying to talk to me. And it's like, get away from me right now. I I'm not in the mindset to talk to anybody. I'm focused on what's going on right here be, between the, the end lines here. So to me, as far as, you know, I don't know if nervous is the right term, but it's, there's like a certain excitement. I get some adrenaline. Um, and there is about when you don't know the environment or you're doing something for a new network or a new team or yeah, that's when you get just, okay, where's everything going to be. But ultimately too, TJ to to bring, and I guess that question kind of spawned into some other branches here. But one of the things that I never do is I never, and I know there's guys that do this. They sit there and they think about calls they're going to use to describe situations. And for me, I can tell, like I can hear something that is a, a canned phrase or a phrase that they thought about. And, you know, when they're in bed at night going, Oh, that's a great phrase. I got to use that. I don't want to say I've never done that, but 99% of the time it's that I just don't do that. So I want to have the Uber focus on the game. So when something incredible happens, you get my genuine call right. and what comes to me in the moment. And I know that, that I run a risk of not hitting it perfectly, 
but that's okay because I feel like more times than not, I hit it at that moment. And if you get it at that moment, those are the calls that people remember. And that's what makes it exciting for the viewer or the listener when you let your emotion and your description come out at that moment. So that's why I never tend to overdo it with the other stuff, because when when great moments happen, I want to be able to to sum up that great moment as best I can with the most genuine emotion. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's totally on point there. You think of some of the greatest calls. It's when the play by play guy's kind of thrown back on his butt a little bit <laughs> and you just sure. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, your colleague, Matt Underwood, one of my favorite calls he's ever done was the Jason Giampi one, because I think he was just in such disbelief when he hit that walk off home run against the White Sox in 2013. That was it was just a genuine, um, you know, it just flowed out of him. I think of Hammy reacting to the Rajay Davis game seven home run and just, you know, you you remember those because of the emotion in the moment, certainly. But the calls become fun to go back and revisit because you can just tell. Not only are you surprised or taken aback by what just took place, but so is the guy that is recapping and, and calling the game. And when you can all kind of come together and feel that that same emotion together, I think it just adds to just that connection of that moment. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. That's that's it. I mean, you want to be genuine. And, you know, to, to me, I could always spot a phony a mile away, whether it's in, in sports broadcasting or just in life. And I don't like that. I'd rather have you be genuine, even if we don't disagree. <laughs> even if we disagree, uh-huh, I have you fun. fooled. I've got you fooled, Pulowski. <laughs> and here I thought you were a great guy all this time. Uh, but yeah, no, that's and and calling calling a game. If, if you've got a bunch of canned phrases or overthought things, to me, to me, that that comes across as disingenuous. I'd rather, like you said, I'd rather have something happen where I am floored, and at the moment here, you know, like. And oh my goodness, type kind of call. Not like you yeah. say those words, but something that comes out that way because it is so genuine, it is so real. And I think that's what people want to hear. They want to identify with you. I mean, you are, in many ways, you're an extension of your audience, of the yeah. fans. And, and that's the way they feel. So you should feel the same way. Well, you certainly feel more comfortable the more you step in and do something. I think that you could kind of bring this full circle. You can say that about every younger player that comes up to the major leagues. It's the same. And anybody in any job that you're doing, think about the first day you were there and think about the, you know, the 700th day you're there. Of course, you're just going to feel a little bit more comfortable. But I'm sure for you, you came into this not knowing what to expect today on the podcast. I'm sure extremely nervous to be filling this chair this week. And I think I got to say you did did a tremendous job. So thank you. TJ, thanks a lot. I really had fun doing it. <laughs> well, you can catch him, of course, before and after every Guardians game. And we do thank Al Palowski for being here today, filling in for Zach, for Zach Meisel, who is not here, for myself, TJ Zupi, and for Al Palowski. Hope everybody has a great week, and we'll see you in the middle of this week over at Patreon, patreon.com slash Godcast for those midweek episodes. Until then, see you later.